This message is sponsored by the Center for Embracing Hope, Healing, and Renewal, a holistic health and wellness center. Faithless and hope, mental health and health go together. It's scientifically proven, y'all. Brought to you from the Consciousness Cultivator, in service to humanity, serving all of the mind, body, and soul's needs from various approaches. Welcome to Radical Awakening. I'm Dr. Q. I'm Zenobia. And I'm Michelle. So what is transgenerational trauma, ladies? So my idea of transgenerational trauma is trauma that happens across generations. So um, my great-grandmother, grandmother, mother and myself are all affected by the trauma in different ways. Um, and what we're finding is that trauma is stored in the DNA. So it's more than just a um, idea now. It's, it's something that's really kind of, or really been, um, has been given scientific weight that trauma is carried in the DNA. So um, I wanted to talk about this because I think it's really important, especially for people of color to, um, in my office, I see a lot of people who come in and they're angry with their parents, as was I early on and for a long time, up until my 40s. And I didn't really understand that my parents had such a deficit because of what they had experienced and their people had experienced because of slavery and um, or enslavement and um, and uh, oppression. And so there was no way when I learned about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I never really put together the fact that you, in order to begin to even think about emotional development, you have to be on the third rung of Maslow's hierarchy, which we can talk about later on. But just as an overview, we so my parents were just really the first generation that had some stability because my father went into the service. And so... Um, they were, they were focused on food, clothing, shelter, sense of belonging and stability, not emotional development. So they didn't have any of that to give me. And for a long time, I didn't get that. Um, my parents were like real breakers in terms of putting me in therapy as a young kid and taking me to like hypnosis and doing a lot of things that a lot of people didn't do at that time, but they still didn't have any idea of how to emotionally work with a child, especially a child like me, who was very emotionally attuned and just a lot, you know, empathetic, um, born just highly 
sensitive and um and so they just didn't know what to do with me because they had shut that part of themselves off to survive so i i like to talk about that to put some context and perspective into um when when we're dealing with when I'm talking to people about their relationship with their parents, especially as it relates to the majority culture, which has a totally different experience many times than um, than my culture, which is African American, or other cultures of minority, other minority cultures who've migrated here to um, America. And I want to say that sometimes I use the term enslaved. I don't like the the term slave or slave slavery. And other times I use the term prisoner of war because that's really, that really better describes the um, circumstances that my people found themselves in. So I, I can relate to some of your experiences in your childhood, Zenobia, because my parents also mostly focused on, you know, food, shelter, and clothing to ensure that we could just survive, really. So anything emotional was never talked about. Um, it also wasn't welcome. So if you were upset about something or something affected you negatively in terms of a, an emotional position, it was not necessarily welcome. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. And the most common thing I heard as a kid growing up was just stop thinking about it. <laughs> mm. Anytime something hurt me, anytime something went wrong, anytime I felt like I failed at something, it was like, dust yourself off and keep walking mm. and stop thinking about it. Those were the two, I guess, therapeutic <laughs> approaches to emotional distress. Um, and I could understand it because, you know, my my culture particularly experienced essentially genocide. And um, yeah, you just, there was no room for feeling anything. You, know, mm -hmm. you can't feel things. What are you talking about feeling? We got bills to pay. We, we got to put food on the table. You know what I mean? And feeling it, what feelings were considered a weakness. Yes. And so what I want to, what I like to talk about in terms of this particular conversation or part of it is how do we still um, incorporate some of those old ideas into the way we parent our children or live our lives today? Because like, you know, spanking, right? Is that something we want to consciously do? Or is that something that was done to us by our captors and it was something that was done to us by our ancestors in order to keep us safe so that if I beat you, then it's, then I'm doing it out of love. It's better than the overseer beating you. And so it's just something that became part of the culture. And, and now am I still doing it because it's the right thing to do and I want to, or is it something that I'm doing just because I think, well, it, it was done to me and it didn't hurt me. I'm fine. So those are things like that are conversations I, I would like for us to consider as a people so that we can start to break out of some of the dysfunctional behaviors that we engage in.
What are your thoughts, Michelle? Well, first thing I, I'd like to do for the benefit of all of our listeners is I just want to do a quick review of what Maslow's hierarchy of needs are, because I think it's going to, you know, for those who are not familiar with it and for those who <clears throat> are not intimate, I just like to do a really quick review. So when you were talking about, you know, that, you know, really that level of introspection doesn't happen until level three, I want to let everybody know what that is. Um, so that they can kind of follow the conversation. So the the basic level of the hierarchy of needs is physiological needs, which includes breathing, um, food, water, shelter, clothing, sleep. The second level is safety and security, health, employment, property, family, and social ability. Third is love and belonging in the realm of friendship, family, intimacy, and the sense of connection. The fourth one is self-esteem in the realm of competence, achievement, respect of others, the need to be a unique individual. And the top tier of the hierarchy is called self-actualization in the areas of morality, creativity, spontaneity, acceptance, experience, purpose, meaning, and inner potential. So those are the hierarchy of needs um, for the purposes of those who are listening and didn't know what they were. And so what I heard, Zenobia, is that when you're <clears throat> struggling to keep a roof over your head mm -hmm. um, or food on the table, right, Wanda, clothes on your back, you know, just, just the very basic level needs, it's, it's not... There, there's not a lot of space, I think, in the mind um, to start thinking about, you know, your your ability to connect with your emotions or anyone else's. Um, so from that point of view, I I absolutely agree. I want to say that um, that that would be a truth that would be everyone's truth for the purposes of our listeners who are in the majority. That is a truth that is true for everyone. Um, it is difficult for any human being to do that. But because this population, the ethnically minority population, has had so much of it, I think this is why this is an issue that really needs to be discussed. Mm -hmm. Mainly so that we can get to the root, the root cause of the emotions that went unacknowledged, Wanda, when you were told not to think about it that you, you were basically that part of yourself that is a feeling human being was being instructed to deny that part of yourself, you know, and yet those emotions have to go somewhere, you know, and so, which is also true for all of us. And as we grow up, th those emotions are going to make themselves known, those unacknowledged places within us that have had no voice and no space to be heard. Um, and as, as a community, we definitely need to pull that out by the root. By the root, we have to go all the way in into that uncomfortable space and that uncomfortable conversation so that we can pull it out by the root. Because it's occupying the space of love. Can't even get to love. Well, this is what this is why I agreed with what you said, you know, mm -hmm. getting to that third tier. Me you too. know, it's it's taking up space and it doesn't serve us anymore. It's it's robbing us of our joy and elevated sense of of awareness of who we are and who what what we are without that trauma. Who are we? Who are we without those lessons? That we I couldn't assume? agree more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. 
I think a lot of people struggle, you know, in adulthood after so many years of being told, uh, don't feel or, you know, don't uh, express, you know, what you're feeling. How do you create the space for love if you're so full of emotions that are being held back and sunk down? You know, it's just not, it's just difficult really to be able to get to a place where you can freely love and receive love as much as give love right mm -hmm. yeah which is why you see a lot of adolescents you know children and adolescents struggle so hard because they're just trying to be those little old free souls that they were meant to be mm -hmm. and here we are conditioning them right mm -hmm. that's sad <clears throat> Yeah. The reason why uh, I like what you said about everyone, Michelle, but I, I think that the reason why it's important, again, just to restate for people of color to really look at the transgenerational trauma is because of the pervasiveness of the um, traumatic events that happened and how it did reshape the consciousness of the community that there was no ability to self-actualize, not in the fullest sense of the word, because there was no ability to have your own sense of self. The, the Jewish author that wrote about being in the concentration camp and finding that he could still have a measure of freedom because he could, they couldn't take away his ability to interpret his life and that's what his freedom was, that he could make his own determination about what Victor was- Victor Frankl? Victor Frankl, yes. And what did okay. he call existentialism? Yes, existential yeah. analysis. Yeah. Yes. And so, um, but I think it, it's different still for people of color because of the, the generational trauma. So it was- and that's why I, I made a, a distinction about transgenerational trauma, because the people who were um, put into concentration camps and they experienced horrific events, but it was really over a generation. What happened to people of color here in America was over 400 years. And so there was no set, no awareness of an ability to even have a sense of independent thought after a generation or two passed and there was no memory of what Africa was like or freedom was like or living on your own was like. So um, once that's stripped away from you, there becomes a sense of learned helplessness and there is no ability to reach a real self-actualization. So it's miraculous, right, that the just as difficult as it was for people of color to endure those situations, it's only been 60 years, 70 years post um, Jim Crow, and there's been so many strides forward. It's miraculous, it speaks to the human spirit. And so the more free we can become, the more conscious we can be about the decisions we make 
one by one? Am I making this decision because it is something that um, I want to do personally? It fits in with my value system. It's part of my core self. And I believe that it makes it's an expression, a positive expression of the woman I cho am choosing to be. Or is this a holdover from some of the things I was taught from my dysfunctional environment? You know, I, I think a lot about um, the places I've been and the things that I've seen. Um, museums, for example, I've been to several museums that are in honor of the people who passed during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. um, I had the honor of going to Austria during a conference and I was able to visit some museums. And I've also been to museums where they show the history and the culture of enslaved Africans um, in in Ghana. And, and I've also been to many museums here in the United States where you can see the history of, you know, Blacks, Jewish. And I'm just like at awe at how this stuff has repeated itself. Um, I think I wonder, you know, will we ever get to a place where there is a generation of people who will not have to endure, I don't know, some level of transgenerational, transgenerational, transgenerational trauma, the way that, you know, these many cultures have, like now you see this war that's happening, you know, between Israel and um, the Palestinians and it breaks my heart because imagine those children growing up the kind of trauma that they will endure and their kids and their kids kids and those kids kids and so on and so forth mm. you know I've been to museums in my country uh, well both of them because I'm from different ones but it's like I've seen what happens to these generations after and it's just mind-boggling to me that we are still in a place where this stuff continues to happen. Mm. You know, and I'm I'm not on anybody's political side. Like I don't subscribe to <laughs> any side of anything. I feel like evil is evil and we need to not do or engage in that kind of behavior mm. or activity. But in terms of how impactful this stuff is from one generation to the next that it could linger for you know so many generations mm -hmm. it's it's a deep and profound um impact yeah you know when michelle introduced the idea to me about dna storing information as if like mm -hmm. a filing cabinet or a computer hard drive that's a okay. great way of, like, that's a great reference. Well, it took me a long time to kind of wrap my mind around that because mm -hmm. I thought, like, but DNA is like a bodily fluid. How could it, not fluid, but concept. I don't even know, like, of a structure. So how could it, like, There's cells. hold the, right, but how could the cells 
hold this information. It doesn't, my brain takes in the information. The cells don't take in the information. And then I learned that each individual cell has its own kind of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so what happened 200 years ago is somehow stored in my DNA. Yes. Profound. yeah, I'd like to um, interject if I could, because I found that what you were saying was really um, quite beautiful. So if it's okay, I want to um, share the quote that Victor offered um, when he was Victor talking. Victor Frankel? Yes, Victor Frankel. Yeah. Um, regarding man's search for meaning. meaning. That's the, the one thing. Book. Yeah, the, he says, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. Happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, by, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. And I, I think that's, that's exactly awesome. what, yeah, what you were saying, um, Zenobia, and it's so true. And, and it actually goes to Wanda to something that you had said um, one or two podcasts ago where you were saying that, you know, every attitude and perspective is a choice, yes. which is very, very much in line with what um, Victor was trying to also propose that regardless of the circumstance, that it is something that you can decide on how to respond. And that includes, I think, responding to the coding of your DNA. So I see it that we are here to break those generate transgenerational traumas, that we're here to create a new strand of DNA by overcoming mm-hmm. them. Just as the DNA was programmed with that information, so too can the genetic um, strings be reprogrammed. And in fact, they are you know, every time somebody releases a limiting or lack-based belief and converts it, the DNA is altered. And so that is the, that is the healing, you know, that I think um, culturally needs to really be committed to, because that is the alteration from within. That is the, that is the healing from within, the love from within. And then that is the place where we can offer that to the world. You're right. I mean, war is not love. You know, and I think that any time that two people make war on each other, it's an expression, it's the absence of love. Mm-hmm. And it, it leaves those scars in our genetic structure. And I, I believe that the people who are here now on earth are here to break, to break those codes and to transform the genetic structure so that now people can be born into the world without those. Um, and I think it's one person at a time. Oh my gosh, Michelle, that was so beautifully said. And I should repeat it again. You said something to the effect of the absence of love. Like, I don't think people really understand that. War is the absence of love. Yeah. I don't think people understand that though. That's, that's incredibly powerful. You know why? Because they get caught up in who's right and who's wrong mm. instead of what's really happening at that level of awareness. 
you know, mm-hmm. regardless of what the, the argument is or the goal is on either side, the approach, how they're responding to that disagreement is an expression of the absence of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What do you think, Zenobia? I was thinking about Michelle's statement about we've come here at this time, people, those of us who inhabit the earth have come here at this time to break, to create a new strand of DNA that doesn't have that transgenerational trauma embedded in it. And I used to be someone who would have really jumped on that bandwagon, but I don't think I have that much hope for humanity anymore. I think it truly is a choice, right? And yes, we 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 have the opportunity when we come here to create that kind of a world. But because of the difficulty when faced with what comes up and the ease in doing what's diff- what's right what's the ease in doing what we know how to do i think most people choose that so i i think that we miss the mark so many times and it's why we see our world in the way that it is now and it's so painful to watch like as you were talking i was thinking about my mind went to the people over in you know israel and palestine and like i felt i was feeling a bombing and what that is like to be someone in a building that's actively being bombed the fear that goes would go through my system if that was happening to me having no like vote in what they're fighting about right right i have no stomach for it and uh sometimes i have to be careful because i get you know those like new york times and cnn dings on my phone and just this morning i opened my phone and it you know happened to ding at that moment and i saw the headline where this one a uh, Palestinian man lost his entire family, like the entire family. I mean, there must have been like, I don't know, 30, 40 people in his family because they were they were fleeing together so that they could stay together and they were in a building and that building got bombed. So we're talking about his kids, his wife, uh, his, I think, parents, siblings, um, the the wives and husbands of those siblings and their children. So he literally had his entire family wiped out and I don't have the stomach for it like I see the headline and I can't even keep reading yeah and I think it's like the fact that he probably could care less about what this war is over right I could care less right but like it's not the first priority for him no and he doesn't have a vote and and or say or say and but he had to lose his family because of it yes that kind of angers me and it makes me like I think about like, could that happen here? 
could that same thing happen here on of this? Of course it could. Yeah. Of course it could. But the reality is that, I, in my opinion, a lot of people are very naive mm. because it, it's not until it's knocking on your door that you're really not worried about it. You know, mm. it's, and it's, I saw this happen during the pandemic. Like I would talk to clients left and right. And they were like, well, I'm not getting vaccinated or something to the effect of, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm not wearing a mask. Remember the whole fiasco with the mask? So then it's like, as soon as they lose a family member, oh, snap, I should wear a mask. Hmm. Or, oh, maybe I should get vaccinated. Like I heard reports during the pandemic of, people who had lost their entire family to mm -hmm. the, to COVID. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I don't know. It, it's true what you say, Zenobia, like some people just don't have even a vote or a say, and yet they are, you know, casualties and almost like it is what it is. That mm -hmm. kind of mentality I feel is so dangerous and so just selfish and what a waste right because like michelle said we have the opportunity to do something different like mm -hmm. we really do have the opportunity to create a totally different society mm -hmm. but we just we we we're powerless for that learned helplessness you know so yeah. for those of us who don't really understand learned helplessness it was coined by Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania in um, Philadelphia. And what he did was, is he had these dogs, right? It was dogs. And he would intermittently feed them. I think this, or it was feeding them and giving them a shock. So he paired the shock with the feeding. And at some point, the dogs stopped eating because they thought that they would get shocked. When he stopped shocking the dogs and just put the food out, they continued to not eat because they thought that they would get a shock. And he, he saw this as the phenomena of learned helplessness, that once something happens to you so often, you will not engage in proactive behavior because of the fear of the incident happening again, even when the incident doesn't continue. And I think that's what we come up against. I, I think you're a hundred, a thousand, a thousand percent, right? That's exactly what it is. It is a programming at a cellular level. And so, and there was a, there was another study that they did. Um, I think it, it was with like mice or something like that, where they, where it was a, maybe an insect, but the, the idea was that they had put a top on, on the jar and it kept hitting mm. the top until eventually it stopped jumping mm. and then they reproduced and the children never jumped. Not once. Mm. Not once the, the 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 offspring of of the initial group mm. that was put into a jar wouldn't even jump. The, the so idea that, never even occurred to them, and they, they so the, jar, the lid was off even after the lid was off. The parents right. weren't jumping out. the The offspring wasn't jumping out. It was profound. So I think that 
you're a thousand percent correct. That's exactly what we're facing. So then the question becomes, how do we reprogram what was programmed? That definitely supports the idea of the DNA. Right. right? And it also supports the idea of learned helplessness being something that takes place across species. Right. And so then the way that that was formed is there was a belief formed and the belief was that if they engaged in that behavior, then that there was going to be a consequence, even when the consequence was removed. So then a new behavior has to be learned, which is very difficult because everything in the body at a cellular structure is saying that this is going to happen. Even when it stops happening, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So the the challenge i find the journey of the soul here is to literally as victor said decide to have a different response in mm-hmm. their existing life and to choose the opposing belief when there is no evidence to support the oppositional belief there's none there's all kinds of evidence for the beliefs that are currently within the structure of the human body, right? Because it's encoded in the DNA. So there's all that understanding, all that learning, all that history is actually, we're walking around in our bodies with it, right? So then the challenge becomes, how do you adopt an opposing belief when all of the evidence points to what is, substantiates and validates what is, and there's nothing to substantiate what isn't. And I think that that is the, that's the wall that a lot of people hit. There's so much evidence to point to. And so, like you said, it's easier to stay in the status quo. It, I find it to be much more heroic and more brave to do the unthinkable and to actually adopt a different response and then create a new experience from that. Um, and Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about it a lot in his book. It's like becoming superhuman. Becoming superhuman, yeah. You know, where he explains how the body is configured and then how we can manipulate that knowledge to actually break the construct of the paradigm that's encoded in our bodies. But I think it's so much more than that, Michelle, because I think that it's more than bravery, bravery or heroism because, like, in order for a person to break those structures you have to be willing to go against your entire environment that's what makes it brave that's what makes it heroic can you imagine being the only voice inside of a hundred people that is going to say something different think something different live a different way that is the definition of heroism because you have to go against everything not only that you know but you're exposing yourself and making yourself vulnerable to the conjecture and the opinions of those around you who love Mm. you, who you admire, whose opinions are important to you at every level. It challenges your identity all the way down to the core. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that it is really, really, really monumental and not common for people to make that choice because it's so difficult. I, I don't. I, I don't even want to minimize the 
impact and the courage that it takes to make a choice like that because you're will you're actually risking all your relationships everything you know every idea you have all the people who have everything that's been comfortable in your life you know they become afraid for you the people who love you and will sometimes turn on you for making those decisions and um so i understand why people choose not to but i also understand why people choose to and i don't know so maybe i used the wrong word you used the correct word heroic and bravery i don't think that it necessarily it's some i think that when most people do it it's not because they're making a conscious choice to do it. I think that they're pushed or fall into the choice at first and then they have to do it. So that is the gift of the struggle, the gift of desperation, right? And I know, I see Wanda smile. I know we all know about that, right? And about how that gift of desperation, when it looks like, it is the worst thing that could possibly have happened if you can take that experience and and make a decision determined to do something different with it speak to that michelle if you don't mind uh yeah i i was smiling when i saw wanda smiling too right i i think that um a lot of people have encountered something that really could be classified as Eckhart likes to call it the dark night of the soul where, you know, you had this experience that is just life altering in some way. And I, I still agree though. I still agree that it is, it is how we decide to use that experience. Um, and what is the intention behind what we have learned from that experience? I, I smile because when you were talking about that, it, it kind of made me chuckle. I can tell you that before I really started on my soul's journey, which wasn't until my 40s, I can tell you that um, I had an entire other group of friends um, and an entire different way of, of living life. Mm. And I was smiling because not a one of them are in my life anymore. Mm -hmm. um, there is only one. I, I see her every now and then. Um, but she just has made a conscious decision to love me despite all of the changes that I have made to my identity. Um, but quantifiably, I have lost everybody that I thought um, was a very good friend because I made a decision to think differently and to live my life differently. It made people uncomfortable. Um, and instead of leaning into, I think, having those uncomfortable conversations, it was just you know, paths separated. I have a family who kind of really looks at me askance um, because I have moved into a paradigm where I challenge now um, all of the beliefs that I was raised with. And I am okay now. Now, I smile because I say that now, but I will acknowledge, Zenobia, that when you're going through that metamorphosis, right? When the caterpillar is falling into that mush before it becomes that butterfly, that is a painful 
painful place to be mm. when people that you thought loved you, when people that you thought cared for you, people that you thought would have your back, people that you thought would always be your ride or dies, when all of a sudden they don't know you anymore. Mm. And that is a very painful place to be. And you have to have to, like, I call it a come to Jesus moment. Mm. Like, am I going to, you know, continue on my path? Am I going to follow my heart and just lose all of that? Or, you know, am I going to sell out so that I, I can mm. hold on to those friendships? And then why? Why would you do that? Because why those friendships have become a part of your identity. Mm -hmm. They have a meaning that is, I think, false. You can be wonderful, exactly who you are. You can change who you are every five minutes. And it's okay if people are not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. So all of my friends are gone. I have a whole new set of friends. You know, the universe moved in the people that can that can deal with my my things, Your right? Yes, you mean yeah. <laughs> right. The universe has moved in people who are grounded enough in themselves where I get to be me, and they're okay with that. Where mm -hmm. there, there's a place where people can see things differently, and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't have that circle. And now I, I have a family who has made a decision, and it was a choice because they were made uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, when I challenge things that the family believed in all these times, right and wrong, morality, good and bad, but they as have made, I. they have made yeah. a decision to love me anyway. But as, it, as have I, <laughs> you know. But you know, you can you definitely see where the rubber meets the road when you decide to follow your own mm -hmm. heart's journey. Yeah. But that's also really scary, like uh, Zenobia said to some degree, right, Michelle? Like, you can't just wake up one day and be like, no, nah, not going to care what anybody thinks about me because I'm going to just do this. And even though but, but I'm going to be right. my damn self. Victor right? was right. It is a choice. You can choose yes. how to respond regardless of what is happening around you. By all and, means, yeah. Yeah. But it's painful. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going right. to belittle that for anybody else either. It is painful. And that's, that's what I was talking about in our recent podcast. And when I said, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what is the answer to uh, overcoming or managing or just keeping depression, anxiety and all kinds of other issues at bay? I'm like, it's a conscious decision that you're not going to succumb. Mm -hmm. Literally. And, you know, uh, uh, people will be like, oh, but my circumstances and said in the third, listen, I get it. But you still have control over your reaction to whatever is happening to you. Hello everybody, my name's Natalie and I work behind the scenes at Radical Awakening Podcast. First, I want to say thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoy making it. Please excuse the abrupt ending of this episode. We decided after recording that we were going to split this into two parts. We appreciate you guys listening and please join us next time for part two of our transgenerational trauma series. Thank you and as Dr. Q would say, be well everybody.